from Five Bears New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Trabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. First of all, question. There are donuts in the office. Yeah. Uh-huh. We're having a little donut day there, Zach. Here, Zach. Oh, nice. What's your opinion of donuts? How do you guys feel about donuts? I love donuts. I love a donut. Oh, I'm very pro-donut. Pro-donuts. Staunchly, staunchly pro-donut. Okay, but you, st- but Zach, you, you asked the question earlier before we started recording. Uh-huh. Cake or yeast? I'm a cake donut kind of guy more, although I do like both. I think the only kind of donut that I'm sort of out on is the very simple kind of like yeasted donut that's just like glazed. That like like a, frankly, a Krispy Kreme doesn't really do it for me. But I like a filled donut. That's my favorite kind. Oh. <laughs> um, I like Thank that you. one too. <laughs> I might. I was sitting here like we just talked. We love a simple yeast. Yeah, simple yeast glaze. But nothing is as good as a fresh donut, and yes. nothing's as bad as a day old donut. I agree. Yeah, there there is a steep uh, drop off, you know, old donut. But, you know, Mm. I agree. So I agree with that. But I also believe that a fresh donut, they're all, for me, they're all pretty much level. Mm -hmm. Like a fresh donut from Krispy Kreme and a fresh donut from like the trendy boutique are basically the same donut. I agree. I can't really argue with that. I suppose. I, yeah. I, you know, I feel Why like would the you? one topic of 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 some disagreement is how do you feel about filled donuts? I don't love them. Me neither. <laughs> That's just messy. That's just a messy thing for me. I, you don't. You like them, Zach? I do. Yeah. I mean, I I think that you know, if the filling is good, then I'm I'm about it. Like, I think that's my. I think fundamentally, my issue with the sort of simple yeasted donut is like. It's not interesting enough for like how unhealthy it is. I need like yeah. some chocolate in there. I need some salted caramel or I need a filling because I'm eating a donut. Like I'm fucking going for it and I want something more than just like <laughs> sugar bread. Because, you know, I think for me, I like a cake donut as well. Mm-hmm. I think I like them pretty equally if they're of quality. Sure. But I will say one of where I can get on board with the filling is the filled cake donuts from Donut Plant. Like their tres leches and that kind of stuff. Right. That I think is an incredible donut. But that's through, like, it's, it's like a, inside it's, the cake almost. Yeah, but it's not like a, it's not filled like no. it's solid. No, like it's, it's, it's still a ring donut. It's still a ring donut. But it's just filled like a, through the, yeah. 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 That one I love. But like, I think a classic filled donut is like something you have to eat by yourself in the corner. Yeah, no one can watch you. I yeah. mean, is there a dignified way to eat donuts, Joanna? Like, do you eat them with a knife and fork? Is... Come on. No. You are a knife and fork donut eater, I bet. No, no. Oh, okay. no. Don't say that to That's me. That's so rude. rude. I don't know. You're, you, you know, I, you're concerned about, you know, the cleanliness of your hands, which I get. You know, it's an important thing in life. But like. You know, a donut, it's like it's like eating chicken wings, right? Like, they're just messy foods, and you have to be accepting a level of public humiliation that comes along with the enjoyment of something delicious. I guess. And or yeah. be eating them with other people who can't judge you because they're just as messy. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's eating a donut together. Yeah. I, I will say, though, too, like, so there was someone who had a hot, the hot opinion that the best donut is the strawberry glazed or whatever, the Sim- strawberry Simpsons icing. donut. Not into it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would, they're my son's not, favorite, not into it. but he's four. They are. Well, I think that they are when you're a little kid. Yeah, it's pink yeah. and they're sprinkles. Sprinkles. Like, I, sprinkles yeah. I, you could miss me with sprinkles. I, I do not understand the appeal of sprinkles as an adult, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, true. But just take it a little bit one step further. He's going to kill this further. I do think there's a hierarchy in the quality of cookies. Oh, okay. agree. Oh, my God. Now we're getting really like, deep. Like, you know what I mean? I think that like, uh, warm cookies are not equal. Like you mean among different kinds of cookies? 
well, even chocolate chip, right? Like one warm chocolate chip is not as good as a different warm chocolate chip. Whereas like one warm donut is the same to me as another warm donut. I feel like chocolate chip is actually the the type of cookie where the level of quality is much more discernible when they're not hot. Like, oh, that's true. If mm -hmm. they're chewy, if they're crunchy, if they're, yeah. Like I think I could see that right. Warm chocolate chip cookie is kind of a warm chocolate chip cookie. It's when they cool that you get the chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, yeah. It's like a cold, cold beer. Yeah, Yeah. they're not my favorite kind, but they are very good. So, anyways, Zach, what'd you drink this week? Not, not cookies or donuts. Although I did eat some cookies. So we had a big family reunion on the Oregon coast that was. You know, unsurprisingly, knowing me and my family involved a lot of drinking, um, we actually brought truly a heroic amount of wine and beer mostly, which we drank a fair bit of, but also had to take a lot home. Um, I think the standout for me was uh, one of my cousins brought a really nice bottle of um, Valtellina Superiore from Arpepe, um, the 2011 Grimello, which is one of their single vineyards. So this is mm-hmm. uh, made from uh, Nebbiolo, but in Valtellina, not in Piedmont. And uh, just a beautiful wine. Um, definitely like one of those things where, you know, you open a bottle like that in a large group and you're like, okay, let me just get a couple of ounces because that's the best I can hope to do, which, you know, we hmm. did. It was great. Um, drank lots of other stuff, some uh, Nematica wine on the beach, which was fun. Uh, cool. Drank some, frankly, some Modelo that uh, you and Joanna provided for me a couple of weeks ago. Brought that down. <laughs> nice. Crushed some Modellos. Yeah, no, it was very nice. Uh, yeah, just a, a nice, you know, like the beach is like, we could talk about this some other time, I think. I like drinking on the beach. It's kind of fun, but it's like a new level. Like it's less relaxing for me now that I have kids because I have to constantly make sure my son is not like running in the ocean or my dog is not running in the ocean or both of them are not (laughs) running in the ocean. So it's like the like dream of like sitting back in the, in the like beach chair and just sort of like half falling asleep while drinking a beer is like a little gone for the moment. So that was a little sad, but everything else was fun. How about you guys? Well, I in truth, I haven't had much to drink since I've been back from my trip. But I, I did mention the wines that I had um, in our last episode. Mm-hmm. But other things that I drank while away, um, I had a lot of Superbach beer, which is their local like Portuguese beer. You know, pretty basic, but like mm-hmm. very, very good after a day of hiking. And then I had... In terms of cocktails, a really delicious take on a gin fizz with their local... There's like a local Azorian gin um, that they make with their local um, botanicals and uh, local blackberry liqueur as well. And I had a really good take on a New York sour, which is which is actually one of my favorite cocktails. That's a great cocktail. I love that drink. I don't you don't see it a lot, but like I love the red wine float on top. So, yeah. So some I don't know when when I'm traveling like that, I'm not really seeking out. Obviously, it depends on where you are. Like Mm -hmm. if it's more of a city seeking out some cocktail bars and great places to drink, but not for this particular trip. So. Um, but yeah, it was really, really good and relaxing. Awesome. Um, what about you, Adam? So I also haven't been drinking that much recently, but, uh, I had a bottle of division Malbec okay. that was delicious, uh, last weekend. Um, and then last night I went to like impromptu dinner with Josh. Um, and he and I went to Marta near the office and we bought a bottle of Villadoria Barolo that was really awesome to go with the pizzas. I was going to say you had pizza, right? Yeah, pretty good pizza. And Josh has like this move, which I will admit is pretty baller where he takes the mushroom pie from Marta mm-hmm. and then he adds sausage. <laughs> it's, it's pretty delicious. It nice. makes it even more decadent. <laughs> and I was like, I can never do that with Naomi's here. So let's do it. <laughs> it was fun. Um, but yeah, that's about it. So something that I thought would be an interesting conversation to have this week that came out of some conversations I've had with other people in the industry is 
how on fire the auction market is mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to wine, and especially how on fire the market is in, in very specific areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know we tend to talk a lot about um, you know just the current trends in wine premiumization, people looking for natural, et cetera. But there is this whole segment of the wine industry that has existed for decades um, that is something that I think kind of gets forgotten in the sort of just general conversation about wine. But of recent times, that market seems to be even more explosive because of sort of COVID's impact, right? A lot of Restaurants liquidated their sellers. They flooded the market with more wines, um, and people came into lots more capital. Right? There's a lot of people that as we've discussed did very well in COVID, um, and so like that sort of ability to make more cash than they normally would have, uh, you know, allowed them more playing money. Right? And so some of the trends that we've sort of seen are. The typical wine's doing really well, right? Screaming Eagle selling for $7,000 on average a bottle. Uh, their Sauvignon Blanc selling for $10,000 a bottle on average. That's crazy. Which is nuts. I mean, I don't know of a Sauvignon Blanc that I would ever think is worth that kind of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest trend is Burgundy being on fire, right? That just, it seems like there is no, nothing that will mute people's desire to pay massive amounts of money for these wines. Um, but is that a trend or hasn't that always been the case? No, no, well, it's I mean, trend. if you go back to like this, yeah, it's a trend. Cause if you go back to the seventies and eighties, people would say they were still very like modest, right? You could, you could go to Burgundy and buy these wines. You don't even mm-hmm. have to go back that far. I think if you even go back the nineties, right? Like to the early two thousands, I mean, yeah, DRC was expensive, but it was nothing like it is now. And all the other producers, you know, that now command, you know, four, four digit price tags per bottle, you know, those wines sold for a, a tenth the price or something like that and it's not that burgundy was ever cheap um or at least not like in in any recent memory but it was not you know burgundy did not compete besides maybe one or two wines at 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 bordeaux prices and now burgundy sells for more than bordeaux on average it's crazy i mean why do you i mean what's what's interesting though is you know one of the things that i mean I, i will not mention who they were but i talked to someone who runs one of the top auction houses in new york and what they were telling me was like what we kind of forget is that Bordeaux will always be the backbone of the market, right? Because there's just so much of it mm-hmm. that they'll all it'll always be the largest lots in auctions. You know, they'll always be Lafitte and things like that. And the prices will always be around what they're going to be. But even this person can't really explain why Burgundy is so explosive because it mm. just doesn't make sense to people who are in who've been in wine forever, right? You look at like yeah, as, as Zach just said, these wines are good, but to just blindly drop six or seven thousand dollars for a bottle is insane. It feels like I don't know. I mean, Zach, what do you think okay, it so is about Burgundy that has made people so obsessed? I have I have three connected theories on this. Okay. The first one is that this is a response to the sort of homogeneity. And this is homogeneity is maybe not the perfect word, but it's kind of gets at what I'm getting at of the collectible wine market before Burgundy's ascension. And it's that, you know, the mm-hmm. sort of wines that were really dominant were, you know, Bordeaux. So, you know, typically Cabernet based blends, maybe some, you know, from the right bank that are really highly prestige that are Merlot based or Cabernet Franc based. And then Cabernet-based wines from Napa. And that was, you know, sort of the backbone of the industry. And for one, 
you know, Burgundy has a different profile, obviously different varieties. You know, we're probably mostly talking about red Burgundy here, but there's definitely some white Burgundy that also commands really steep prices. And I think more than anything else, there was the belief in some cases that the relative small production and scarcity of some of these wines would allow their price to rise as it has. So if you're a speculator, if you're someone who's purchasing this wine solely as an investment, no intention to ever drink it, you're just buying it, hoping to recognize a, a meaningful um, you know, appreciation in value, then in some sense, you know, Bordeaux is maybe secure, but it's like a blue chip stock, right? It's not that interesting if you're looking to make a big score and where you could potentially make out like a bandit is if you are buying a lot of this small production wine from producers in Burgundy that may be not as critically acclaimed yet as they could be. And I think that's driving a lot of it, right? People are seeing this. I honestly think the one of the other biggest things is that so much of the high profile fraud um, in the wine industry is around Burgundy, which you would think would keep people away from it. But I actually right, think it's yeah. drawn more attention to the category, right? I think the Rudy Kurniawan story and all that stuff, mm-hmm. the, what he was forging was almost entirely Burgundy, not all, but almost entirely Burgundy. And it caused people to be like, oh, wait, this is the stuff that people are really like spending big money on. This is the stuff that like the true connoisseurs are into. Like, I want that. I either want it again for purely speculative like more reasons. appeal then as a result yeah. of yeah. the fraud. Yeah. Or, and, and I think the last piece of it is, and it comes back to maybe my first point is like, it's not like because of supply and, and various other things and, and like just the sort of way that the category has been structured. There are five first growth Bordeaux wines, right? And there are a few mm-hmm. other wines that command similar prices. But everyone knows what they are. You can go buy them at fucking Total Wine. Like nothing against Total Wine. But like you can go buy them there in a lot of cases. And this this kind of like Grand Cru, very small production, small producer yeah. Burgundy, you have to have a connect. You know, you have to buy it at auction. You have to have a really good hookup at like one of a few wine shops in the country that gets these wines. Like they are just not things that you can go out and buy easily and that i think drives a lot of this behavior too the the difficulty of acquiring these wines is what both drives the price up from the speculators and drives a certain kind of person who wants to show off through their collection um to to gravitate towards these wines because they're just hard to get yeah i mean i think one of the things that we're seeing especially in burgundy is that the producers have also wised up to this so i mean first of all like from talking to some people like they're making less they're making a lot more so they're recognizing that they can raise their prices they now are also doing the same thing that you've seen american wineries do right they're going pure dtc Mm -hmm. so they're creating these private client lists they're selling directly to people maybe through like to make it as legal as possible Without, without taking having people take massive cuts from them, you know, maybe through whatever agent they need to go through, but for the most part, they're selling direct, right? So they have collectors who are very loyal, who've been very loyal to them for, for forever, and then you're seeing this sort of like not underground gray market, but then the way people are flipping these wines is they actually aren't putting them up at auction because to put them up at auction, right, would mean that that producer might figure out who, you know, who they had sold to, right? Because it'll say it could be from from the collection of Joanna Sherino is a bunch of wines from Burgundy, right? Mm. If you're on one of these producers' lists, that producer might say, you know what, Joanna, like, I don't like that you're putting my wines up at auction, so I'm actually going to take you off my list. Mm. So instead, what you do is you go to 
an, you know, someone at an auction house, but who has their own private client list. And you say, sell Hey, I'm looking to sell directly to another mm-hmm. collector. Here are the prices. And then that person does like a, a side sale almost yeah. right. Like in the, you know, in their email list, like, Hey, I have a collector that has a few bottles. They're looking to get seven to 10,000 per bottle. Best price I get, I'll sell the bottles to. Here's, you know, the provenance. I know who the collector is, blah, blah, blah. You're seeing that a lot more, mm-hmm. too. And one of the things I think that is also the reason there is a massive interest in Burgundy that is kind of obvious, but we don't talk about that much, is that a majority of people who collect wine come from the world of finance. And that's because the world of finance makes a lot of people lots of money. Yeah. Sure. And you're used to investing in secure asset classes that appreciate. And Burgundy, as Zach you know, said, is an asset class that's appreciating, mm-hmm. right? And appreciating very fast. And so it feels like a very worthwhile investment. In a way that like Bordeaux is kind of stagnant. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like Bordeaux, Bordeaux is blue chip, right? It, it increases, but not, you're not going to suddenly make a crazy markedly. killing. You're just going to yeah. make a solid return on your investment, presumably. Yeah, it's like it's like buying mutual funds mm-hmm. or buying like GE, like my grandfather used to buy GE versus buying Tesla. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't know if Tesla's stock is going to ultimately crater. There's a lot of people who think it might, but right now it's on fire and it's the same with Burgundy. Like it's going to come people think it will come back to earth, but it hasn't yet. And so maybe it never will. And that's I think what's just insane for people, but I think what that also is doing, which is the really sad thing, is it means so much of this wine isn't getting opened. Yeah. So one of these anecdotes that an auction an auctioneer told me is that one of their clients told them that he started collecting other categories of wine. He's a big Burgundy collector, but he started collecting other categories of wine, Barolos and the Southern Rhone, things like that. And when they asked him why, his response was, well, because I will actually drink and open those but every day I think about opening a bottle of Burgundy, I just think about its value and that it could be worth more tomorrow. And I will kick myself if I open something and lost money because <laughs> he's a hedge fund manager. Yeah. And that is just like, man, what are we doing? This is just such a fascinating world to me. I have like no sense. I've never been to a wine auction. I would love to go to a wine auction. I, I want you to. I went to one. Uh, I can't remember if Keith came with me, but I went to one. I went to Christie's a while ago, and I would I would say it was actually pretty boring. Mm-hmm. I've heard that like some of the others are fun, or they used to be. Like some of the others, like more of like because Christie's is an auction house that auctions lots of stuff, right? Yeah. So it was it was very vanilla. But, yeah, buttoned up. Um, but, like, I've heard that, like, Zaki's apparently has a crazy auction, or they used to prior to COVID. Like, they would throw parties. Uh, Acker Merrill was known for throwing parties. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that exists anymore because it's – we're in a post-COVID world, and I think a lot of these people realize that they're making a shit ton of money anyways now with all their high-end, high-network people not only either bidding online live auctions or doing what I discussed earlier, which is, you know, sort of just getting wine passed to their networks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. But I don't think it's as crazy as it could be. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be anymore. I have a question. So you mentioned people in finance, this being like a pretty yeah. big thing for them. Do you think that that's kind of the way that this, that like wine auctions will continue? Like if younger people in the finance industry will learn from like the older people and, and continue it that way? Because I feel like how else is this going to keep going? So that's a fascinating question that I specifically asked to 
one person in the industry. And they were like, well, right now you would think, Mm -hmm. but right now we're not seeing that. Like the average, like the youngest age of people who are really active in the collecting market still are like in their fifties. So because the the prices are so high, I also think because there's so much else now to invest in for other people. Because most people, to be fair, most people do get into collecting wine because they like wine yeah, Mm -hmm. or they like going out to dinner or whatever. There is a passion for it. It's just like, you know, I know this, the same thing gets said for the art market. Like there are definitely terrible people in the art market who are just collecting because they're collecting because it's an asset. But a lot of people who collect really do love art and they really want to support artists. And I do think that a lot of people who collect wine, it does come from a, a place of passion where they do sure. truly love wine and all that stuff. But then that part of their brain that makes them really good at the rest of their life mm-hmm. and, and their job kicks in of like, oh, well, let me, let me computerize this and, you know, build formulas. And, and so I think it just, it's, it's a natural thing. Um, I don't know. I, well, I think it will happen though. I, I don't think that there's any way that it won't. Well, I think mm-hmm. one but, of the most fascinating things here too, to, to come back to this question of kind of, in some sense, where is this, you know, burgundy bubble going is like to differentiate from art, this wine has a shelf life, right? Yeah. If theoretically the the thing that is supporting the price of this of these bottles is that someone somewhere down the road will eventually want to drink the wine. Well, there is a lifespan for all wines and there's a lifespan for right. Burgundy. And, you know, one of my Burgundy hot takes is that the lifespan for Burgundy is actually a lot shorter than a lot of people like to think. Um, having mm-hmm. had the opportunity to taste a few older bottles, I, I tend to think that it's not a 40, 50 year old wine. It's a 20 to maybe 30 year old wine in most cases, even the the best wines. And so there's a case here where one, I I do think there's a real risk for some of these collectors of being the person left holding the bag when suddenly it's like, well, yeah, yeah, I want to, I paid $6,000 for this bottle of wine. Here it is eight years later and no one wants to pay even $6,000 for it, let alone more. Because in the end, Mm -hmm. everyone's like, who, how many people are there who, can not only afford that, but then are the example aren't even the example of the person you gave before the anecdote you gave before Adam, someone who will then open the bottle and drink it, which is again right. theoretically what is supposed to happen. And especially, it's like, you know, I don't know if either of you collected baseball cards when you were a kid. I did. I was I was not a baseball card. Well, you know pogs. how I feel about baseball. I collected pogs. Sure, yeah. but maybe okay. But you know, pogs fine. Whatever. There there are lots of things that were rocks. the case. And I think for all of us being kids at a time when there was suddenly a huge market for especially baseball cards from our parents' generation, and the the thing that supported the value of those cards was a they didn't like deteriorate in the way that wine did and right. B, so little of it was collected right part of what made the those baseball cards from the 50s and 60s valuable is most kids who got baseball cards in the 50s and 60s like you know did shit with them right they stuck them in the spokes of their bike or they looked at them they drew <laughs> on them they you know they they just they used them as kids do and they didn't lock them away in you know uh temperature controlled vaults and say i will save this for 30 years and then eventually i'll right. make some money on it and what happened to the collectible card market when I was a kid was, you know, me and a million other kids were like, oh, I'm going to hoard all these cards. So all of a sudden, like when you're like five years later, oh, I want to sell my card collection. Well, you and 30 other kids in your hometown yeah, are trying to sell Yeah, me and my baby babies. Yeah, same thing, right? Everyone saw those things as being valuable and they had a moment mm-hmm. of value, but the bubble burst pretty quickly because there was a lot of supply. And I, I think that this the Burgundy crowd in particular is going to you know hit this problem of a the wines don't age as well as you think they have a shelf life and b if everyone is collecting it and no one is opening it 
then you're not really having a decreasing supply. You're just having people kind of pass around the supply until again, theoretically, there has to be someone at the end who's going to take the cork out and drink the wine. And that's what supports the value of it in a way that, uh, you know, artwork isn't, you know, as long as it's taken care of, it's not going to deteriorate in the same way. And theoretically, someone may come down the line and say, I'm going to buy this and I'm going to put it up in my home or I'm going to donate it to a museum as a show of my mm-hmm. largesse or whatever and, you know, do all these things. And and I do think that that is one real risk for Burgundy in particular, but, but all collectible wine to some extent. The other thing I'm going to say is there's also this other risk. And, and to come back to the fraud question, and again, I think this is a, cat, a topic that no one in the auction market wants to talk about. I'm sure... You know the pe- the people you've talked to, Adam, are not interested in really talking about this. No, probably not. But Burgundy is so, in particular, ripe for fraud because the scarcity of the wine, the relatively small yeah. production. There just are so few people who have tasted these wines and have any kind of benchmark to compare it to. You know, if you are selling an older bottle of first growth Bordeaux, well, that wine is out there. There's not tons of it, but there. But often people have tasted it before, and if you taste a bottle that seems you know markedly different you know, you might be suspicious. They're also like well understood. The labels have been well preserved. You can compare them. And those and those wineries don't make a bunch of different wines. They make one wine. So you can look very closely at other examples to know if there's fraud going on. I mean, it doesn't mean that it, it never goes mm-hmm. undetected. I'm sure that there's fraudulent Bordeaux past and things like that, you know, high-end Napa wine, et cetera. But the, the, the real, you know, right vein for fraud is, is Burgundy because it's so, you know, it's so small production. The wines have historically not been collected for as long. And, you know, even the experts don't have maybe the same background as they do in, you know, First Growth Bordeaux, you know, Colt Napa, etc. And I just, you know, to me, it's like playing with fire. And again, maybe that's what these hedge fund types want to do, right? There's a, a you know, they're probably, they probably were slash are all in crypto and NFTs and shit like that. And maybe the thrill yeah. of the, you know, the, the, the volatility of the industry is part of the attraction. And so fuck it, go buy Burgundy, have fun. Maybe you'll open one of the bottles when it, you know, it's all, no longer worth anything. But mm-hmm. I, I just, if people out here are listening and are like, oh, well, maybe I should do, like, don't, just don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do wonder too, if, you know, part of like what could pop the burgundy bubble specifically is that the beauty of art and the way you get into art is that you're able to go to museums, you're able to go to galleries and you're able to see it mm-hmm. and you're able to appreciate it. And if there's, if the burgundy prices are so expensive that this next generation, there's very few really high end burgundies I've ever, had. I've never had high end burgundy. Let's be like, I actually really haven't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had maybe a, a premier crew here or there, um, I've had a lot of village stuff, but like, you know, I, I've met, of course, like Psalms who are listening to this podcast probably, oh, I've had a lot of DRC, but you I know have, a lot of them probably you know? haven't either, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> but like, but like they're not, they're not getting glasses of DRC offered to them very often. I bet. Yeah. And you know, and I've gotten to, again, this is, I'm not trying, this is not a brag, but I've gotten to have first growth Bordeaux, like I've had Lafitte a few times because there's so much more of it and people open it. Mm. And so I wonder if you will also see this generation being like, well, I get that it has value, but like I've never had it before. So I'm not kind of like willing to pay for it. Like people who collect watches, like you see what the watch looks like. You understand that there's a whole community of people online that write and read about watch collecting. And there's an appreciation there. And there's a story behind the watch. Like that's the other thing is the watch can pass down from generation to generation. Like the second you open the bottle, it's over. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that's going to be a real issue. And then on the, on the idea of authentication, 
I think, Zach, you have a good point. What I thought was really interesting is someone else in our auction house told me that actually they find liquor harder to authenticate than wine. Mm. Really? Which I thought was really interesting. I guess there's less people out there that do it is one of the initial problems. But again, this is another area where I think you're going to start seeing the auction houses get really heavily involved, especially for bourbon. Yeah. yeah. Because there's all this collection collecting now. And so there are a lot of the auction houses are discussing having like there, there used to be like when I went to the Christie's auction mm -hmm. at the very end of the auction, there was a few lots of single malt and a few lots of Pappy. And this was like six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Now they are devoting full auctions to bourbon. These same houses, right? So, like, it'll be the entire auction is people's bourbon collections, um, which I think is really interesting. But who knows? Could be could be harder to authenticate. But I just I think there's something crazy about the fact that there's there's some of these wines out there that like we just don't know if anyone's ever drank. Like going back to Screaming Eagle, I bet you know I would I could make a bet that no one's ever actually drank it. <laughs> like no one's actually ever had Screaming Eagle. All the people that talk about it, no one's ever had it. Because at that price, I can't see that you're opening it. So $10,000 bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, come on. If you open that, you'd be like, look, like literally, I just got completely screwed. It's Sauvignon <laughs> Blanc. And you're just doing it, you know, it's almost like you're, you, are, you are assuring that the only people who will ever open it are the kind of person who wants you to be really, 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 really aware that they can afford to open a $10,000 bottle of white wine. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is like someone who is like opening it for you. Like Jeff Bezos might open it. <laughs> like that's that. You know what I mean? That'd be a Jeff. Be that'd be a real Bezos. I don't know if, I don't know if Bezos collects wine. <laughs> I, I, I'm not I don't sure think he that. does either. But like, you know what I mean? It's like like a supervillain. Like that's an Elon Musk move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you I know, remember. that's an Elon <laughs> Musk move. That's a like, let me open this case of Screaming Eagle Sauvignon Blanc, $120,000. Nothing to me. I tried to buy Twitter. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I assume he has a car that just runs on. Sauvignon Blanc from Sauvignon Screaming Eagle. Yeah, made by Screaming <laughs> Eagle. <laughs> like, I mean, it's insane. Well, if you listen to the podcast and you at all collect or you're involved in the auction market, hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. If you really want to go to the Vine stories. Pair office and open a bottle of Screaming Eagle for Adam and Joanna. Yes. <laughs> yeah, look, if you have Screaming Eagle and you want to open it, look, I'll buy the dinner, you bring the wines. <laughs> okay? Anyone want to share some of these wines with me? Hit me up, podcastofvinepair.com. I'll buy the dinner. You just got to take us. You bring the wines. We'll pay the corkage. It'll be great. Cool? Might be Shake Shack, but I'll buy the dinner. Uh, and I'll talk to both of you on Friday. Talk to you Friday. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. <laughs>